proof of life. And what does that mean? And, you know, honestly, we live in a day and age where people demand proof. You know, gone are the days where people just accept what we say or what we claim on face of value. But people demand evidence to back up a claim that we make. And one of the things that popped in my mind is think about the Nathan's hot dog eating competition. Fourth of July weekend, I don't know how many people are familiar with the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. But every year on Fourth of July, they have this hot dog eating contest. And for the last several years, Joey Chestnut has been the reigning champion. I think he's won like every year except for one for the last 12 years. It's just kind of crazy. But he can't just make the claim that I am the hot dog eating champion because every July 4th comes around and he needs to prove that he is the hot dog eating champion. And just a few short days ago on July 4th, he once again proved that he's a champion. He ate 71 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. I mean, I don't think I ate that much last year, let alone in 10 minutes. And the next closest person only ate, it was like 48 hot dogs. So he won by 23. So if I were him, I probably would have stopped once I had a comfortable lead. But that's how you prove something, right? I mean, it's emphatic, exclamation mark. I just destroyed you by eating all these hot dogs. And I don't know how it's humanly possible. It just baffles my mind. Uh, but it demands proof. Also, we, we have an office space in Brooklyn Park, and as long as the weather's nice, us guys, usually once a day, like to go take a lap outside around the building, get away from our computers and desks, try to, you know, get the blood flowing a little bit. And this last year, we bought a football for the office because it's not good just to go for a walk. We need to throw the football, pretend we're active, have a little fun outside. And the very first day that we had the football, we're walking, we're playing catch, and we get to a spot on the building where there's a part you can actually throw the football over part of the building. And so I looked at the guy and said, hey, I bet I could throw this football over this corner of the building. And naturally, they said, hey, okay, prove it. So Connor runs out, and I mean, it's a ways away. And I had a little bit of pride built up in me, so that's probably where I should have noticed this wasn't going to end well. But I let this thing go. And I could throw a decent football. And I was like, this is going really well. And on the far end of the building, it hits the edge and bounces straight up and back onto the roof. The very first time we use this football, and I get it stuck on the roof because they made me prove it, and I clearly couldn't. Now, since then, I've built up a little more arm strength, and you know, we play a little more catch with the football. But the very first time, I couldn't back up that claim, and they never let me hear the end of it. Now, whenever we walk around the building, you know, we always point to that area. And I haven't gotten it stuck again, but I had to make kind of the call of shame to our maintenance guy, and I said, our football is up on top of the roof. If you could help us get it down, it would be great. But everything we do in life, every time we make a claim, every time we claim to be something or that we can do something, it demands a burden of proof. And in the same way, your first known, those of us who are followers of Jesus need to continually provide proof that we are indeed his followers. We need to provide proof. And that's what this series is all about. It's about living our title as followers of Jesus and really pinpointing what those characteristics look like that back up that claim. So let me start off by asking you a question this morning. Do the people in your life know that you are a follower of Jesus? And if the answer is yes, do they know that because you've said you are, you've told me I'm a Christian? Or do they know it because they've seen the proof in your life? And some of you might be asking, okay, Jerry, what, like, how do I prove that? What does this proof look like? Well, let me tell you. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Galatia, and he talks about this very thing, kind of lays out what these characteristics look like. And in Galatians 5, 14 through 23, this is what Paul says. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then in verse 19 here, Paul goes on to really describe what it means to live a life that is contrary to what God wants for our lives. He says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, and the like. Then he says, I warn you as I did before. So it's kind of like a parent saying, I've already told you once, but I'm going to tell you again, I'm going to warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul starts out by laying this out. Okay, these are the things that we really want to avoid. And that's great and all, but then Paul goes on to actually tie this whole thing up by saying, but these then are the characteristics that will define somebody who's a follower of Jesus. And these are what those things are, starting in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So he starts off by saying, hey, these are the things of the flesh. These are the things that we want to avoid. But then he follows up with these characteristics, these fruit of the Spirit, the proof of God's life in us. And this is the list that he gives us. So for an example, for an apple tree to be called an apple tree, what does it need to produce? Apples. It wasn't a trick question. All right. On top of it. In the same way, to actually be a Christian, we need to produce things that are Christ-like, right? We need to have these characteristics that prove that we are his followers. And that's what Paul is describing here. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at each one of these things one by one. It's going to take us through the entire summer. But really, it's going to look at what it means to have all these characteristics of a follower of Jesus. And this week, we're going to look at the very first fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentioned, and that is love. And I've mentioned this before, but I'm a firm believer that whenever we read a list, that the very first thing on the list is there because it's important and it's intentionally put there. Because oftentimes everything else that follows will build on top of that first thing. And this is no different. Paul's very intentional by starting with love. Because if we go through that list of other things, if we don't have love, if we don't get that part right, all the other things are going to be nearly impossible to do. So that's why he starts with love. And he starts with love too because Jesus really emphasized the importance of love to his followers and we're not talking about a romantic love because your kids are with you this morning. That would be awkward. But we're talking about what does love mean? What does love mean when it means to sacrifice, to honor, to put others first? How do we choose other people? How do we put them first and really, really love them well? You see, Jesus called his followers disciples. And that word literally just means a pupil or a follower, a person who learns to obey by growing or imitating the person they're following. And Jesus made it very clear how he wanted his followers to behave. And John records Jesus' words in the book of John 13, 35. He says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you go to church on Sundays. Right? I mean, so hey, we're good, right? We're all... No, that's not what it says. Here, let's try this again. Uh, By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you memorize the Bible. No? that's not... Okay, let's try one more. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you frequent Chick-fil-A. 
right? Now, I don't know, you know the first two might have been off, but that third one, I, was, I think that is spot on. And I don't know about you, but I love my Jesus chicken. I mean, that stuff is, I want it all day, every day, except on Sundays, okay? They're not open today, so no post-church Chick-fil-A run. Uh, but this one, I think it just missed the cut, okay? I think it just missed the cut. But what Jesus actually said, he says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. As simple as that, if you love one another. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you don't love one another, you're really not that close to me. To put it bluntly, it doesn't matter how smart we are, how many selfies we take at church proving people, hey, I went to church on Sunday, how many Riverway stickers we have on our car. None of that stuff matters if we don't love each other well. Because that is how people will know that we are his followers, by how we love one another. You see, there's a direct correlation between our love for people and our love for God. We can't separate the two. Here's a great way to put it. You know, say, say, for example, you and I are on great terms, good relationship, but then you start to treat my kids poorly. It'd be awful foolish to think that we can still be on good terms if you're not treating my kids well. And it's the same way with God. When we treat his children poorly, when we don't love his children, regardless of if we see eye to eye and everything, regardless if we have the same beliefs, if we don't treat his children well, how can we expect to be in good standing with the Father? When we put it that way, it's pretty clear to think that I really need to love people in order to prove my love for God. See, these two things are tied together. You know, many of us are familiar with the golden rule, you know, do unto others as we'd have them do unto us. But there's a rule that actually takes this rule to the next level. We call it the platinum rule. I didn't make that up, but I liked it. But here's the platinum rule, and it's your next fill-in. We are to love others the way Jesus loves us. We're to love others the way Jesus loves us. And that certainly ups the ante a little bit, doesn't it? It's not just how we wish we were treated, but the way Jesus loves us, that's how we are in turn to love one another. You see, if Jesus commands us to love another, we need to ask the question, and it's your next feeling, is what does love require of me? What does love require of me? You see, and that's the filter that we're going to look at today. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Okay, so if that's true, really what does love require of me? And Jesus was once asked which of God's commandments was most important. And his answer really tells us what love requires of us. In the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So here Jesus is boiling down 613 Old Testament laws just to two. Love God and love people. And some might say, well, isn't that kind of oversimplifying all these laws? But here's the truth. While this makes it simpler, okay, love God, love people, it requires so much more. Because no longer do we get to just hide behind this huge stack of law, of law, of law, of these rules, rules, rules. 
But what this does, it encourages us, it forces us to engage in the mess of our lives, of our friends' lives, our family's lives. And ask this question, what does love require of me? Even though I might not agree with the way that happened or why they did that, what does love require? Does it require me telling them how wrong they were and bashing them over the head? No. What does love require of me? It means reaching out in love and truly loving that person. So while this is simpler, yes, it requires so much more because suddenly we're in the middle, sometimes of the mess and chaos. But that question just rings louder and louder. What does love require of me? This means that every time we pick up the Bible and read it or every time we try to teach a lesson or every time we struggle to figure out how to deal with something that's difficult, we start to filter our experience, filter what we're going through through that lens of loving God and loving others. That's the lens through which we interact with each other. That's the lens through which we make decisions. It's, am I loving God? Am I loving others? Are those things that are guiding me? You see, this is a game changer, and Jesus understood this profound truth Your next film. When it comes to influence, behavior is more important than belief. When it comes to our influence, behavior is more important than belief. And it's as simple as this. Your belief can be right. You can be factually right. But if we're jerks about it, if we don't do something in a loving way, it doesn't matter if we're right. Because our behavior will trump our belief every single time. And I've never seen so much present, there's such a present context for this than when I look at how we engage and even interact on social media. I think this is the biggest area where we could all stop and ask ourselves, what does love require of me? Before I make this post, before I comment on this thing I don't agree with, what does love require of me? Because I promise you, if we stop and ask that question enough times, we're most likely not going to hit send. We might not reply to that text the same way. We might not respond in that meeting the same way. Because as followers of Jesus, loving God and loving others is the lens through which we do everything. You see, this is why what Jesus said and did was so profound. He interacted with people based on their stories, not merely on their theology or their religious doctrine. He treated people differently because they were different people and they had different stories and different backgrounds. It wasn't a one-size-fits-all, but he approached people on their level and listened to their stories. And this changes things, and we've all experienced this. It might be that person, that coworker, that neighbor that maybe just rubs you the wrong way and that, oh, I just can't stand that person. But then maybe you hear part of their story, a little bit of their background or their upbringing, and all of a sudden things maybe start to make sense. And maybe you can understand why they do things the way that they do. Or maybe you can understand why they're prone to hurting others because they're hurting themselves. So once we really understand people and their story and their background, it helps us really to love them better. You see, these experiences can change our attitudes, and Jesus always kept other people's stories in mind. And that helped him to love people regardless of the choices they made or the beliefs that they had. It allowed him to love them on their level. And that's the same love that he requires of us, to love God and to love others. Let that be our proof that we are his followers. 
So we know that we need to get this love thing right. But what does this look like practically? Okay, Jerry, how do we love people? Like, practically, what is this like? What are the things that I actually have to do? And the Apostle Paul has a great answer for this question. And it's in another letter he wrote to the church in Corinth. And many of you might have heard this passage read at weddings because it all talks about what love is. But this isn't just for a marriage. It isn't just for a relationship like that. But it's really for how we interact with one another. And it's so profound. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8, and then uh, verse 13. And I love he starts out by saying, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And for example, we have these cymbals back here, right? And I didn't ask our drummer's permission, so I'll just ask forgiveness later. But imagine, we're interacting with somebody, and maybe we know we're right about something. Maybe we're so strong in our beliefs and our convictions that, you know what, I'm going to make sure they know I'm right. If I don't do that in a loving manner, it's going to sound a lot like this. I could have all the facts to back me up. I could have every ground to stand on. But if I don't have love, this is all I hear. They're not going to hear me try to convince them. Like you can barely hear me right now. But when we put the way that we want to get across above loving the other person, when we try to get our point across, when we try to get our beliefs across, there's a way to go about it, and it's loving them. It's engaging them where they are. If we want them to truly hear our heart and understand where we're coming from, it only comes from a posture of love and care. Otherwise, that's all they hear, that clanging symbol over and over. And nobody wants to listen to that for very long. I could tell by the looks on your face. You're waiting for me to get done. <laughs> but that's the people here when we don't put them first. Or it is too important about being right or proving our point. Continues in verse 2, if I have the prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have away and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So here Paul is saying, if you have every gift, if you have every ability, if you have every you know, amount of wealth, if you don't have love, none of it matters. Your abilities, your talents, your experience, none of that stuff matters if we don't have love. And then he goes on to explain what love is. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. In verse 13, he says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So here Paul lays it out, plain as day, what does love actually look like? And I want to take just the next few minutes to really break this down and describe what he's talking about here when he gives us this list of love. 
And he starts off by saying, love is patient. And man, this one can be difficult. Especially for parents in the room. Patients sometimes even with their kids sitting next to you here this morning. But patience. That's why Paul starts with love is patient. And here's your feeling. Here's really what I think we can boil this down to is that love adjusts its pace in light of the people around us instead of demanding that others catch up. It's saying, I'm going to adjust my pace to where they're going instead of demanding that they catch up to me. I remember growing up when our family would go like to the mall or go shopping. Uh, my brother and my dad, all of us are over six feet tall, and my mom is not six feet tall. And I just remember walking around, and my mom would always get so mad that she would yell at us to slow down constantly because naturally, you know, we got longer legs, we would just skip way out ahead of her. And every time she would yell, guys, slow down, I can't keep up with you. And it was so much easier for us to be like, okay, I'll just walk a little slower, as opposed to ask my mom to try to sprint through the mall with us to keep up with us. But that's what it looks like. How do we slow down our pace to allow others to walk with us? Like Ryan talked about a few weeks ago, how do we put those lower rungs back on the ladder? How do we make it easier for others to walk beside us? It's creating margin for people to go at their own pace and not condemning them when they slip up. That's what patience is. It's not only room for people, maybe to be less than maybe what we expected of them. But it's saying, you know what? We all slip up. We all sometimes take a slower pace. So instead of demanding that you catch up with me, I'm going to slow down my pace so you can walk along with me. That is what patience is. Love is kind. You see your next one. Love is loaning one's strength without reminding others of their weaknesses. That's being kind. How can I loan my strength without reminding you of your weakness? Because there's a couple ways that you can help one another or you can help somebody. You can help somebody and let them know how much they need your help. Have you ever experienced somebody like that? Like, I'm going to help you, but I'm going to let you know how much you really needed my help. I'm going to rub in that you couldn't do this on your own or that you needed me. But that's not being kind. That's not being loving. But love is and saying, you know what? I'm going to help you. And I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to do it with class and dignity. And I'm going to help you in a way that wants, that makes you excited about my help. That's not going to make you feel worse about the situation that you're in but you're going to be glad that you are being helped by that person. That's what being kind is. It's how can I leverage what I have for you in a way that makes you feel strengthened, not weakened. That's strength. And that is how we are kind to one another. It goes on to say, love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, and it isn't proud. Man. Some of these get awfully personal. It's like, ugh. Maybe I didn't struggle with one of those, but... Being envy, man, it's, sometimes I'm envious of those neighbors or of that coworker. And it doesn't boast. And sometimes I get really excited. And I just want to let somebody know how successful I was. All right? I mean, come on, let's just be honest. And isn't proud. And when we start to get too proud of our own accomplishments and our own things, suddenly, like my football story, I get a football stuck on the roof. That's not love. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud. Your next feeling here, and this is very, it doesn't come naturally, but love is able to celebrate the accomplishments of other people. That's what love is. It enables us to celebrate the accomplishments of other people. It's not allowing that feeling of envy or jealousy 
to rise up. When we feel those emotions, love chooses to celebrate the other person. When we recognize envy and jealousy, we respond with rejoicing. Uh, One of my favorite authors and speakers is a guy named John Acuff. And I love him partly because he's really funny and I laugh the whole time I listen to him or read his books. Um, But I saw a video he posted recently on social media where he talks about this very topic. I just wanted to kind of paraphrase what he shared. He says, a lot of time we have the tendency to find our identity in our work or in our accomplishments. And this actually makes it harder for us to love people. He says, because once we do that, everybody else is a competitor. And it's hard to celebrate people when there are competitors. It's really hard not to be envious when we view people as competitors. And when our identity is first and foremost as a follower of Jesus, it actually makes us easier to love people and to celebrate them. And when he shared that, I was just like, oh, man. It's so true. Because no matter what line of work we're in, you know, we want to be successful, we want to succeed, and it's so easy for us to place our identity in those things. But when we start to do that, it makes it so much harder for us to actually love one another. It makes it hard for us to celebrate with them, to be happy for them, to be joyful for them. But that's what love does, and that's what love requires of us. Is how can I celebrate the accomplishments of other people? Love does not dishonor others and is not self-seeking. It's putting others first. And that's what love is. It's asking what's best for them and their future. It's not just about me and now, but it's about them and their future and their future family. You know, sometimes we're all prone to, you know, when we're reading the Bible or hear something on Sunday morning, like, well, maybe it wasn't clear that that's something I shouldn't do. Or maybe they left the door open that that's, there's some wiggle room there. You know what we need to do? We stop and ask the question, is this best for them? What does love require of me? Is it about me and now and my feelings, my emotions, what I want? Or is it about them and their future and their future family and their family's family? Are the decisions I'm making putting others in a successful position? Because that's how we honor others. That's how we're not self-seeking. So when it comes to those things that we're like, "Eh, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell me not to do that, does it honor him? Does it honor her? Does it honor their parents? Does it honor their kids? What does love require? It requires honoring them. It is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered and keeps no record of wrongs. There's no file cabinet filled with shameful memories. You know, we don't forget what people did. It's impossible. We know we don't hold it against them. When we love somebody, we don't hold that little thing over their head forever. It keeps no record of wrongs. And we do this because our Heavenly Father doesn't hold things over our heads. Thankfully, keeps no record of our sins. So who are we then to hang those things over somebody else's head? Keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. You know, sometimes it's very easy when there's that person that you just, you know, maybe you don't like the most, if we're being honest, and you see something unfortunate happen to them, and sometimes deep down inside you're like, 
They had it coming. And you want to celebrate a little bit. You know, that's that flesh kind of rising up. But the truth is that we win and we lose together. And when we start taking joy in someone else's pain and suffering, man, look out. That's not love. That's not saying, what does love require of me? Because when we face hardships and we're in a tough situation, we want someone to come alongside of us. We want them to say, you know, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to help you up. So even sometimes when you're like, oh, that person, this rubs me the wrong way. You know, the old phrase, kill him with kindness. We respond in love. And we ask that question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? See, love always protects. I love this. It has each other's backs. It looks out for one another. You hear a rumor going around at work about somebody, you know what, we squash that, say no. Like, we don't need to be talking about the person. Like, we protect that person. You know, it's a family member. We protect them. It's a friend. We protect them. Love protects. Love comes to the defense of others. It doesn't allow others to take advantage of people, but it protects them. Love protects. Love always trusts. Your next film, love provides a generous explanation for behavior. Love provides a generous explanation for behavior. You know what? It gives the benefit of the doubt. And some might say, man, do we just do that blindly? Or isn't it a little foolish to just give someone the benefit of the doubt or just to trust somebody willy-nilly? Maybe. But let's still do that anyways. Let's give others the benefit of the doubt, just as we hope that they give us the benefit of the doubt. You know, someone shows up late and someone's like, oh, here they are late again. We say, well, you know what? Maybe there is, you know, an issue, an accident, maybe trouble with the kids. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's trust each other. Let's provide a generous explanation for behavior. Let's not jump to bad conclusions. Let's not assume the worst, but let's assume the best. Love always hopes. Your last feeling is love never sizes people up and writes them off. And man, am I thankful for that. Love never sizes people up and writes them off. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, who am I to size someone up and write them off when Jesus has never done that to me. And instantly, that puts things in a whole new perspective. I don't know, I've lost track of how many times our Heavenly Father could have written me off because of choices I've made. Never once has he done that. So who would I be to do that to somebody else? But love always hopes. It hopes for the best. And it never writes people off. And it always hopes, and love always perseveres. It doesn't quit, it doesn't throw in the towel, but it hangs on and it fights. It fights and it fights. It perseveres. And it perseveres because love never fails. No matter how rocky things get, no matter how difficult things are, no matter how hard it is, love never fails. Jesus said two things, love God and love others. When we do these things, it will not fail. Now, can you imagine with me just what would it look like? What would happen in our families and our communities and even our nation? I mean, even if just for a week or for a month, we ask this question, what does love require of me? 
Can you imagine the profound difference that we would notice? And as we read through these things, someone might say, if, I just, if I'm doing these things constantly, what if someone takes advantage of it? But you know what? If we do these things constantly, not only are we protecting others, trusting them, giving them the benefit of the doubt, but people are doing that for us as well. People are going to come alongside us. They're going to trust us. They're going to protect us. They're going to help us. They're going to celebrate us. And that's what love does. So the question is, will we be Christ-like? Will our lives prove that we are his followers? Will we love one another as he loved us? And we do that by asking this question, what does love require of me? In this difficult circumstance, what does love require of me? When I've been mistreated, what does love require of me? When I've been left out or ignored, what does love require of me? When somebody stole your idea at work and was successful because of it, what does love require of me? When you're having success, what does love require of me? When you have failures, what does love require of me? In every situation, the lens on which we ask is, what does love require of me? And it's so simple, but it's also so demanding because it demands that we truly love one another. Regardless of us seeing eye to eye on everything, we love one another. And this is how they will know that you are my followers. Nothing else. Just this. You see, our greatest investment in life, I believe, is how well we set up the next generation to follow Jesus. And even there's a lot of that next generation sitting in this room here with us today. And I think as adults, as parents, the greatest investment we can make is how well are we setting up the young people, the next generation, to follow Jesus. And I tell you what, that the driving force behind how well we can do that is found in our Christ-likeness. Yep, that's a word, Christ-likeness. But also in our love for one another. It's not going to be in our knowledge. It's not going to be if we can win a debate or not. It's not going to be about if we can prove our point well. We can set them up by showing how we love one another. That is the greatest investment we can make. And as a church, as followers of Christ, when we do that well, we will truly be known for our love. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us we need to be known for. So my challenge to you is let's commit to letting our love for each other, for one another, for those inside, for those outside. Let our love be the proof of God's life alive in us. Because once we get that right, people will truly know that we are his followers. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. And God, I just pray that as a response to that love for us, that you would help us to love one another. God, that this question, what does love require of me, would ring so loudly in our heads and in our hearts. And that every day we'd ask you, Jesus, help me to love others the way you love me. And God, that as we continue to pray that prayer, that you would do something different in our hearts, that you would change us, that you would change those around us. 
that suddenly people would truly begin to see this proof of your life alive in us. So God, help us all to do that. And I want us to take just the next 30 seconds here. And I just really believe that God has the ability sometimes to speak to our hearts. And I want all of us to ask God, maybe to show us some of these things, some of these characteristics of love that we talked about. And ask him if there's ones that maybe we're struggling with, or maybe there's some that we just avoid doing. But that we would just open our hearts wide and say, God, show me which part of love that I need to grow and that I need your help in. And let's ask him to do that. So let's just take the next 30 seconds and ask him to show us that area in our lives. Father, we thank you again for your love for us. Lord, that you've never written us off, that you've never held things above our head. God, you chose to love us unconditionally. God, and it's our prayer this morning that you'd help us to love others that same exact way. God, that every day you'd help us to love each other the way that you love us. And God, we pray that as we begin to take those steps, God, your life in us would be so evident to those around us that people would just be even asking us questions about, man, why are you doing things like that? Why are you so loving and giving and generous? It's because of your life alive in us. And God, that that would have such reaching impact on everybody around us. So God, even as we go throughout our weeks, Lord, that you'd help these things just ring true inside of us. And if that there's any of these characteristics that maybe we struggle with or these things that, you know, just don't come natural, Lord, that you would help us. God, you'd give us the wisdom to know what to do and when to do it, but also the courage to live these things out. So we thank you so much, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.